considering that Jamiel Jamiel Saxon. Jamiel Saxon. <laughs> I think we found our drop. <laughs> hey guys, just the top of the show note here. After we recorded this episode, word hit the comic news circuit, which I now pay attention to apparently, that Ed Brubaker, first in his newsletter and then during an interview with Kevin Smith, has begun talking about publicly how, despite the prominence and success of the Falcon and the Winter Soldier and Bucky Barnes as a character, he has received no financial compensation for the show and very little credit. We've talked before about how royalties in comic books are complicated, and both the big two can be stingy with them. Ed Brubaker is a great creator, and Disney, despite being one of the largest entertainment conglomerates in the world, does not have a good record of treating creators with respect. If you enjoyed this episode, the comic this show's about, the movie that adapted it, the sequel to that movie, or the now-airing TV show, the last episode should be dropping two days after this one, please consider supporting Brubaker through his indie work and other projects. I've got a rec at the end of this episode if you want a place to start. We'll link an article about this in the show notes if you want to see more. All right, let's get started. Welcome to Behind the Yellow Boxes, your one-stop comics history podcast. I'm Steph, your co-host and friendly neighborhood archivist. And I'm Brooke, your not-so-friendly, self-declared comics expert. We're two comic nerds with a lot of opinions, and we think it's important to know your history if we want to understand why comics are the way they are. And if you've been a newer convert to comics... As in newer, as in within the last two decades, to be fair then you may not have heard the common mantra for comic book stores of old. There are three deaths in comics that can never be undone. Uncle Ben, Jason Todd, and Buggy Barnes. And in the reverse of that, if you're not a comic reader from the past two decades, you may be surprised to learn that two of the three are very much kicking. Though with the Marvel Cinematic Universe and Disney Plus currently releasing episodes of The Falcon and the Winter Soldier, you're probably aware that at least Bucky has had something of a glow up over the past two decades. Strangely enough, within the same year, both DC Comics and Marvel Comics undid the deaths of two of the most famously dead characters. And in both scenarios, the large event style returns of these classic characters dealt with themes of loss, remorse, betrayal, and upset to those who had mourned the deaths of these characters for all the decades before. Jason Todd's return is something deserving of its own study, but today we're going to be tackling the return of the other dead sidekick most noted in comics, Bucky Barnes, aka the proverbial Winter Soldier, and one of the most remembered highlights of Ed Brubaker's iconic run on Captain America. While we're doing that, we'll also discuss one of the huge differences between the DC and Marvel universes and some of the interesting eccentricities of a decision made by Stan Lee half a century ago. And while we're doing so, we'll cover some of the controversy that exists within the concept of a child sidekick and sidekicks in general, as Brubaker actually highlights as something of a theme in Winter Soldier proper. If you're looking for an in-depth page-by-page comparison of the comic Winter Soldier storyline and the MCU movie by the same name, that's not entirely what we'll be doing with this episode. 
while we'll cover many points of interest, this is still a comics first podcast. So the movie will be more of a footnote. Kind of like Steve's hairstyle was a footnote in his character design for this. So sad. To be fair, we were still a few years from Chris Evans becoming the face of Captain America, but yeah, Steve's hair has a few years of suffering yet. We'll send him our deepest sympathies. As we discussed in our Jack Kirby episode, Captain America was created by Jack Kirby and Joe Simon in 1941, before America had even entered the Second World War. And he was a gigantic deal, selling more issues than any competitors, including Superman. What we didn't mention was that for all the comparisons between Captain America and Superman, there was something emulated from other popular superhero Batman at the time. A plucky, younger sidekick at Cap's side that let the children at home see themselves as riding along on Cap's adventures. Cap's sidekick, Bucky Barnes, was with Steve Rogers from the very beginning. And it's not hard to see why. When Batman sales flagged behind other heroes just the year before, Bob Kane and Bill Finger had a stroke of genius and added the first sidekick in the comics history, Robin, the boy wonder. And as a result, they had heightened sales again. Kirby and Simon must have seen the utility of this move and headed it off from the start, with Bucky even appearing on the iconic cover of Captain America number one, where Steve Rogers socks Hitler. Bucky has his own blip in the corner, declaring himself Captain America's young ally. From a marketing position, one might question how Bucky being introduced as Cap's young ally was meant to grab attention before people even knew who Captain America was. But clearly, Kirby and Simon knew way better than the rest of us because it was a huge success. In a historical perspective, it also makes a lot of sense for what Kirby and Simon were trying to achieve with Captain America. Remember, Americans were still seeing World War II as a hard sell, and sentiments were not all that unfriendly to the Axis powers. Captain America wasn't simply showing what the Axis were antithetical to, that being American values. They were also selling the idea that a Captain America was leading the youth of America against the country's biggest threats. And that's exactly what Bucky was representative of. There is basically no way that Brooke and I won't cover a Robin retrospective in the future. But it's worth putting up front that sidekicks overall were used in superhero comics as one part sales gimmick to attract more young readers and one part social responsibility. We can't completely remove historical context from these stories. Uh, That's the whole point of the podcast, after all. But child sidekicks were often taken in by heroes as wards, adopted children, younger brothers and sisters, something that is mocked nowadays. I mean, we're not immune. We certainly make fun of Bruce Wayne and his army of children, but it wasn't alien to children of the 40s and 50s. After the Great Depression and into the Second World War, American children were often subject to terrible poverty and a huge risk of abandonment or orphaning. Parents could barely support themselves, let alone a full family. Orphanages all over the country were filled to bursting, with few families in a financial position to take on another mouth to feed. Seeing superheroes take in young children, teach them moral values, and take them on huge adventures was appealing to children the world over. And taking on a sidekick and providing stability for a child was a shorthand for moral goodness of these heroes. In a time when things were risky and frightening, superheroes provided some of the first examples of blended and chosen families to many people. Of course, by the end of the Golden Age and at the start of the Silver Age, with the Comics Code Authority in full swing, 
sidekicks became less an emphasis on found families and adoption as the 50s and 60s had some pretty strong opinions about non-nuclear families and more of an excuse to take already childish storylines and turn them up to 11. If Superman was acting like a playground bully, the actual children in comics had to be taken to even more inconsequential and silly storylines. And since Seduction of the Innocent had made a point of portraying sidekicks as euphemisms for homosexual relationships, the familial take comics had once comfortably leaned into was now completely severed. While many comics like DC had to work in real time to change the portrayal of sidekick characters, Marvel was only really getting its start in the 60s with the launch of Fantastic Four number one. The Marvel Universe as we know it today comes from this era almost entirely. And sidekicks were already getting a reputation among the general public that lots of people in the industry weren't comfortable with. It became way more common to lampoon sidekicks than to play them straight. Captain America series had ended its run in 1949, taking with it the only Marvel sidekick of prominence, Bucky. Bucky would only thereafter find occasional highlights and flashbacks for other characters. A retcon in a 1964 issue of The Avengers would reveal that Bucky had apparently gone missing after the end of World War II, along with Captain America. While Cap would be found by The Avengers and revived, Bucky would be revealed to have had a noble and heroic death in another Avengers tale, Avengers number 56, in 1968. The death of Bucky was shown having a huge effect on both Steve Rogers and the world of Marvel's 616 universe in general. In-universe, heroes would frequently make reference to Bucky's death and even justify their refusal to take on teen sidekicks as a result. Out of universe, this was basically parroting a common talking point from Stan Lee himself, who was very vocal about his feelings on sidekicks. He once said, The cliche I tried to avoid was a one I hated. Teenage sidekicks. I always figured if I were a superhero, there's no way on God's earth that I'm going to pal around with some teenager." So my publisher insisted I have a teenager in the series because they always felt teenagers wouldn't read the books unless a teenager was in the story, which is nonsense. Not to disagree entirely, but isn't Stan famous for bucking against his publishers for also doing the opposite, insisting that Spider-Man be a hero that's a teenager without a partner? Yes, he also co-created at this time the X-Men with Jack Kirby which was a team of teen heroes working under the direction of their adult mentor, Professor X. Which, on its face, isn't that much different from the relationship superheroes held with sidekicks in the decades prior. To be fair to Stan, there was a real criticism to the idea of sidekicks that he was representing. One that took a very different look at the role of heroes rather than the status quo of DC Comics at the time. We are looking at comics as modeling behaviors for their readers, pushing them more and more to relate to the characters on the page. And we also have to acknowledge that in dangerous and deadly situations, we don't want children to follow adults blindly and take on jobs not for them. After all, child labor laws saw quite a bit of change between early 1900s and the mid-1900s. As a population, we were becoming more and more understanding that childhood and teenagerdom were important stages of life that deserved more protection than it had been afforded previously. By killing their, to that point, only truly iconic sidekick and keeping him dead, 
Marvel Comics kind of took a stance against the believability of child sidekicks that DC couldn't. And for a lot of fans, even to today, that's a line they prefer. So Bucky stayed dead and all of Cap's sidekicks after him would be full adults, such as my personal favorite, Sam Wilson, the Falcon, who would become Cap's second most iconic partner to date after they joined forces in 1969, just a year after Bucky's death was confirmed. Bucky would still have an important place of prominence in the Marvel Universe's lore for the next several decades, but especially in Captain America's comics, where he was still clearly missed and held in high regard by Cap himself. And that takes us into 2005 and the very start of Ed Brubaker's critically acclaimed run on Captain America, 2005 to 2011. By the early aughts, Captain America and Marvel overall had a fairly rough run of things. Comics in general were suffering the after effects of the comic bubble burst, and the years following September 11th and the ensuing Iraq war and financial crisis looming over everyone caused a general anxiety that was palpable in American media. Captain America had just had a short-lived 2002 series that was very much a reactionary and jingoistic response to the events of 2001, which had not been reflected on very charitably in recent years and didn't do much for Steve Rogers' reputation as being a blank slate, pushing the American narrative without much opinion of his own or real characterization. It wasn't surprising that a new Cap run would try to break the mold set up before, but I don't think anyone was expecting what a shock to the system Ed Brubaker's writing would really be. Reading Brubaker's run hits hard because first and foremost, we are reminded that In spite of everything, the Nazi punching, the seeming immortality, the larger-than-life adventures, the spy escapades, Steve Rogers is actually a human. He has emotions, he has regrets, and he has opinions outside of his orders. In fact, more times than not, Steve will do the opposite of what his superiors tell him, because he is, first and foremost, acting in the name of what he sees as good people, not of S.H.I.E.L.D. or shady government handlers. And one of the things Brubaker hits on, especially at the start of Winter Soldier, is that Steve is a very haunted man. He has seen the worst of humanity. He has lost what others can't even know to fear losing. And he is weary of conflict in spite of how often he comes across it. A lot of his behaviors and his flashbacks seem to speak to an untreated trauma or PTSD that would be familiar to soldiers of any generation. Of course, he's haunted by more than just a memory, because there is a greater plot at work unraveling before him, Sharon Carter, and the Agents of S.H.I.E.L.D., which includes the original Nick Fury, which is very jarring to read, considering that Samuel Jackson's face has been synonymous with the character for well over a decade now. Extremely jarring. Why is he white? I don't like this. (laughs) The murder victims being targeted by a mysterious and infamous Cold War assassin known as the Winter Soldier are people of interest to Steve and S.H.I.E.L.D., Jack Monroe, a once successor to the Captain America's alternate title, Nomad, and the nefarious Red Skull himself, all seemingly under the instruction of Soviet General Alexander Lukin. I probably said that wrong. Evidence to the identity of the mysterious Winter Soldier continues to mount, and Cap, Sharon, and Nick Fury find themselves at odds several times with operatives Lucan, but it soon can't be overlooked by S.H.I.E.L.D. anymore. 
The Winter Soldier is none other than Bucky Barnes, Cap's World War II sidekick, looking like an adult, but not nearly old enough to explain his current reappearance. It settles on what the other see as a delusional take. That is, if this is Bucky, if he is still alive, then he must still have the good man and friend Steve has known his whole life inside of him. Steve is shocked and in disbelief over the news, both that his oldest friend is alive and that he is supposedly this feared assassin used by anti-American interests. He isn't sure which one he believes, no matter the evidence. This is not an easy sell to anyone else. After all, Bucky has killed lots of people over the years. Important people, bad people, good people, and even ones we are emotionally attached to going into this comic. If you're a Wolverine fan, the tragic assassination of his wife Itsu and the kidnapping and torment of his son Dakin especially makes one's blood run cold. Sharon Carter and Nick Fury are not as convinced as Steve. Sharon Carter and Nick Fury are not as convinced. They believe in Steve, but the Winter Soldier was also responsible for killing Sharon Carter's current love interest. And they also know the truth about Bucky one that the U.S. public doesn't know. That Bucky was, after all, playing dirty for the American side the entire time during World War II, explicitly doing the dirty work that Steve, as a symbol, couldn't, with Steve's full knowledge and consent. The story not only grapples with this, but also with the very concept of Captain America himself. We are introduced to two men who took up the mantle from Steve Rogers after his disappearance, William Naslin and Jeffrey Mace as well as the successor to the mantle of Bucky, Jack Monroe. Naslin and Mace's graves are desecrated, and Monroe is framed for the crimes, leaving no doubt that this is an attack on Steve personally, tracing back to an encounter with a Russian general who held a petty grudge about Steve chewing him out in a way that he felt didn't take into account the reality of the Russian front. You know, this does raise a question here, actually. In a story about the weight of Captain America and legacy, where is, you know, the other Captain America of note? Where is Isaiah Bradley? Honestly, good question. Isaiah Bradley definitely is going to get his own episode, but the man known as the Black Captain America before Sam Wilson got that title is conspicuously absent in this storyline that grapples with Steve's legacy and place in the world. Generously, We can assume that the simple reality is that truth, red, white, and black, the story that introduced us to the tragedy of Isaiah Bradley, just wasn't canon yet. The story came out only a year before Captain America Winter Soldier, and it was supposed to be non-canon at first, with Marvel apparently changing its mind partway through the story. So it could genuinely just be a hadn't been told it was canon yet. The Bradleys had just tentatively entered the canon with the character of Isaiah's son, Josiah Al-Haj Sadiq, in the limited series The Crew by Christopher Priest. But the character would later pick up Bucky's own costume and bring back truth, red, white, and black into the mainstream. Eli Bradley not, was not to appear until after the storyline had already began in the pages of Young Avengers. It's also possible that since the Bradleys are a state secret, the Brubaker just didn't have an easy way for Bucky to target them. Like we said at the top, the storyline of Winter Soldier began in 2005, well into the Iraq War, and also at the very beginning of American sentiment beginning to truly turn. 
the military's own involvement in the creation of Al-Qaeda was becoming more publicized. It was a time to re-examine what we had taken for granted as American values. To the readers who had grown up with him, Bucky represented a good image of the past. The plucky young sidekick showing that America was fighting on the right side, with the right way. A counterpoint to Hitler youth, one of the only people who really truly understood Steve on every level, both as Captain America and as Steve Rogers. But as Steve's flashbacks throughout the stories continue, the readers are presented with evidence of a more complicated version of the classic character. Bucky had never been as clean and simple as we remembered. He was a child assassin, willing and ready to fight and kill in war. And even with that, he was still exposed to horrific nightmares that no one could have been prepared for. He was the one to sneak ahead to kill guards, was the one who could take care of problems that Captain America couldn't be seen handling. He was 16 when he started and 21 when he died. And in many ways, his loss was the loss that defined the loss of Steve's entire life. Brubaker draws a parallel between the complicated and sometimes very ugly history of America with the same history of Captain America. It's never been simple. It's always been questionable. And what makes Steve remarkable is not that history, but how he chooses to move forward with it. This examination of character takes a lot of important artistic choices in order to be conveyed. For all the deserved accolades that Brubaker receives for his writing, Steve Epting and other artists on this landmark run really do make the impact of art in this visual medium well known. Even the extensive use of flashbacks feel perfectly portrayed, never confusing past or present without making them jarringly different with each other in a way that doesn't flow. Brubaker is a great collaborator for artists, often allowing for large expanses of negative space in his scripts where the artists are trusted to fill in. Steve can reconcile that the child he knew and loved as a close friend in World War II is no longer there that there is something inherently questionable about a 16-year-old who, like many other World War II soldiers, including those in my own family, gleefully lied about their age to go off to war. But he refuses to give up on the goodness that is still inherently there. And even when Sharon and Nick aren't on board, Steve has another sidekick on his side who's on the same page as him. Enter the Falcon, Sam Wilson helping Steve to try and bring Bucky back home, purely because he believes Steve when Steve says it can be done. An adult sidekick compared to Bucky's childhood past, but someone who supported and assisted Cap all the same. Someone who, just as Bucky once did, embodies the positivity and change that Steve has always wanted to provide. The climax brings us to a horrible confrontation with the former sidekick, but just as all seems lost, the MacGuffin... Cosmic Cube. Oh, 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 right. Same difference. The Cosmic Cube sets off and is able to return Bucky's memories to him. He's horrified at himself, his past abuse, and all the things he has unwillingly done, leading him to vie for an escape and mourn his loss of innocence. Hmm. Did you hum? Well, Yeah. The ending is very much a comic book sort of ending and even built up by Brubaker throughout. But I have to find myself preferring how the MCU handled this fallout. The MCU's version is a bit more complicated and messy with Bucky struggling to recreate his memories from scratch and still dealing with the threat of returning to the state of the Winter Soldier. 
instead of being magically fixed with a cube right off the bat. The stinger from the Winter Soldier movie, ending with Bucky and the Smithsonian, the wrong Smithsonian, I must say, which they have doubled down on in the Falcon and Winter Soldier miniseries, it does not make sense why Cap's exhibit is in air and space instead of American history. Anyways, um, you know, the scene where he's like standing in the Smithsonian looking at the exhibits about himself and this is how he's putting himself together is powerful. He doesn't have his own memories, but so he's having to recreate them from scratch. Not that the final panel with Bucky sitting alone at Camp Lay, where he and Steve were trained, isn't powerful in its own right, but it lacks the sense of displacement and confusion and vulnerability. Without a doubt, adaptations for other media have a few things they get to take advantage of. The comic story is basically a rough draft, and they can build on their own continuity changes and take advantage of cinematic language to do things comics can't. And in this case, I definitely agree with you that there's more satisfaction in how Bucky's memories return as handled in the film adaptation. That doesn't mean, though, that the Winter Soldier comic is not beautiful and heartbreaking and well done with its own terms. It's one of the most lauded Captain America comics for good reason, but it's an ending worth noting. Bucky would eventually join Cap's cast full time again and even get to wear his own Cap suit. But his heroic rise in the comics was mostly contained to Captain America comics, and his relationship with Sam Wilson was not explored directly in any depth until the last few years. Just in time for a show tie-in, just like this podcast episode. (laughs) You know, with all of the going back and re-examining this era of Marvel Comics, it really was one of those things where I forgot how many comics from this era I just genuinely loved. So it made it actually kind of difficult to pick a wreck because I did want to get something from this era, but I did have to follow my heart. So I'm embracing the spirit of early 2000s Marvel weirdness and going for one of the very first Marvel comics I ever read. Runaways, the 2003 run by Brian K. Vaughn is a seriously wonderful book. The concept of a team of teenagers who have to grapple with a uniquely superhero world problem. Finding out your parents are supervillains. The children have a variety of backgrounds, powers, and skills, and it leads to a fascinating group dynamic, including, most importantly, a dinosaur. The team has had multiple books over the years, including the current ongoing by Rainbow Rowell, which I admit I'm very far behind on. But after all these years, I still have such a soft spot for the original run above all the others. Uh, For a more modern recommendation, I had to uh, stick with Ed Brubaker's Givings, which is not easy because even in the last few years, Ed Brubaker has given a lot of comics. Um, But uh, holding myself to uh, recent years, I ended up... uh, choosing Ed Brubaker's work with artist Sean Phillips, uh, The Fade Out. And while this comic came out in 2014 and wrapped up in 2016, the story itself is classic Hollywood noir. Uh, Charlie Parrish is a classic Hollywood screenwriter who secretly acts as a front for his partner, the blacklisted Gill. They both find themselves caught up in a murder investigation after waking from a blackout with an assassinated Hollywood starlet. The twists and turns their quest for justice has them traversed down are 
legitimately too good for me to spoil for anybody. I really want uh, people to go pick this up for themselves. But I highly recommend this both to mystery fans and to people who enjoyed The Winter Soldier. I think um, if you enjoyed The Winter Soldier, you may be pretty surprised uh, how many similar themes are tied into the fade out. Well, that's it for this week's episode. Thank you so much for listening. Please subscribe, leave a review or a rating, or tell a friend to spread the word. If you've got an episode suggestion, want to cry over Bucky Barnes, or just really like comics, you can tweet us at yellowboxespod or email us at yellowboxespodcast at gmail.com. Special thanks for Ke- to Kevin McLeod for the music that serves as our intro and outro, Feeling Good. Thanks for listening. Evidence to... (laughs) Whoops. Clumsy brick strikes again. Whoops. (laughs) We're having a day. We are.